Welcome back to Beyond the Tech. We hope you enjoyed our first podcast where I interviewed my co-host Alex on his career journey through his time at Walmart, going on to become global CTO at Ux Netaporti and then group CIO at Emirates Group. Moving on from there, we are about to interview an extraordinary leader in the world of cybersecurity, Mika McCreary. Alex, you've also managed to spend a little bit of time with Mika recently. Tell me, what are you looking forward to today in the conversation with him? Ryan, uh, I'm really excited about this because undeniably, Mika has an impressive track record. Um, and in a short uh, you know, time that I've known Mika, he's very articulate. I would say Mika represents a modern CISO, uh, Chief Information Security Officer. And, and we need this type of CISO in the era that uh, we need to influence boards um, versus just executing um, cybersecurity. And also, I believe that CISOs in this new era are the forefront of the new emerging technologies such as generative AI, uh, which again, it uh, highlights the importance of cybersecurity. So I'm really excited to hear Mika's uh, thoughts on the role of a modern CISO. Okay, Alex. With that in mind, I'd like to introduce you to Mika McCrary. Mika, uh, quick hello from you. Hello, thank you both for having me here. Happy to be here today. Brian, I've been really looking forward to this episode. There is so much to unpack. Let's get started. Fantastic. Let's give the audience a quick introduction to Mika. Mika, up until recently, was the global head of offensive security for UBS. UBS is one of the world's most prestigious global financial services firms, providing wealth management, investment banking, asset management, as well as an array of other financial services capabilities to clients worldwide. Prior to UBS, Mika spent many years in consulting with both PwC and EY. There he was focused mainly on cyber strategy, organizational design, operational resilience, risk management, and insider threat. In his time as a consultant, he worked across numerous sectors and geographies. He was then snapped up by UBS, initially as the COO for the CISO function and later serving as a global head of cyber risk and offensive security. Let's start off with a simple question, Mika. What first got you into this space? Ah, that's, that's an interesting question. Um, luck, mostly. Uh, I know that's not a great answer, but um, I started my career in consulting, really uh, got brought into it because of my previous background. Ended up working on cyber, which was, let's say, less directly related to my previous career, but it was a natural segue. I, I have an undergrad degree in anthropology, a master's in international business, and a doctorate in law. So the early days for me were really about what is my position in this space? How does, how does that figure in? I, I really valued the hard skills and went hard into learning that because the question was, what value do I provide without that? Over the progression of my career, you realize that the soft skills, how to translate this to something that the business understands, how to help develop and lead a strategy, how to drive execution. Those are really the skills that are harder to find and the harder to adapt in your mm. team. And so that's kind of been the, the trajectory for me. And as a consultant, you worked across numerous industry sectors, and then you ended up being snapped up by UBS to go in-house. I'd love to know how you made that transition, how significantly different it was advising organizations from the outside to working 
pretty much in the same way, but from within the inside and, and how you were able to influence the organization towards improving their culture. Yeah, especially in a large financial services organization, obviously, I've spent quite a lot of time. I think I've worked with most of the globally significant banks out there by, this, by the point that I had joined UBS in-house, including UBS as a client before that. But, you know, in, in consulting, particularly at the kind of CISO up or board level advisory stuff that, that I was doing, you ended up focusing on strategic change in, into the future. The reality on the ground when you get in is you end up dealing with a lot of retrospective legacy issues. And so how do you navigate this kind of look backwards while addressing the challenges of today while moving into the challenges tomorrow in a way that aligns with the business? So I think that was a, a new optic that was informative for my career. Yes. And layered on top of that, I guess there is significant complexity to consider based on the scale of the organization in this culture and all the nuances that are attached to one particular organization that you've really got to get hold of and understand before you can begin to make an impact and put in a strategy that is executable. Absolutely. I mean, I think one is, you know, what's the strategic goal of a business? The, the second would be, what's the culture there? Uh, that's an endemic challenge or opportunity, depending on how you look at it, to ensure that security writ large is part and parcel of the way that they do business. And then ensuring that you have buy-in from the top down. So from leadership all the way through. In the insider threat space, you always say people as sensor, right? In that they're the first people to notice if something's going wrong. Uh, it's their day-to-day job and they're the first line of defense against any threat actor out there. So making sure that people feel empowered to be part of that organization and to be part of that process is important. Hey, Alex, you've been a global CTO for some large and complex organizations. How would you typically assess and align the cybersecurity strategy with the strategic goals of the business? And what role does business culture and, and also maturity play in how you integrate security into daily operations? Love to get your perspective. Well, first of all, I would say my approach always involved the transformation of cybersecurity into a competitive advantage, advocating uh, for intentional investment and cultivating a culture where everybody is actively contributing to risk mitigation. I would describe it as cybersecurity as a unifying purpose within the organization and making it an integral part of the organizational culture. And, and Mika, I'm really interested in your um, insight about the role itself, because you've seen this role in different organizations as a consultant, but also in a large organization with a very complex landscape. I mean, you touched on technology landscape, but I can imagine investment banks would be very complex in terms of hierarchy and organization. So in your views, what background and experience, and I mean both hard skills and soft skills, would somebody need if they're thinking about this role to get into the industry? It would be really interesting to hear your thoughts. Mm, yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting question, Alex. And I think it, it changes a bit based on the organization, right? I know that's a very lawyerly answer to say it depends. But, you know, the scale and complexity of an organization, whether you are delivering all those services in-house or using managed service providers to deliver those will change what you're looking for. I would say from my perspective, security is overwhelmingly, first and foremost, a governance activity, right? You need to be able to manage the space. You need to be able to understand the risk. You need to be able to communicate that to senior audiences in a way that they understand. So the ability to 
create, maintain, uh, improve governance structures and the ability to effectively communicate with your stakeholders in a language they understand. I think by and far the two most important skill sets for a CISO. Obviously having some technical backing, being able to understand how the defense in depth works, how you want to layer security onto that process, how you quilt response activities or detection activities, et cetera, together to be able to hone in on kind of what the kill chain is for the threat actors that are relevant to you and hopefully cut that process early. I think it's important. Mika, if you look at the role of the CISO and the candidate profile these days, can you tell me a little bit more about how you've seen that change over, over the years, maybe the last five to seven years? And perhaps on the flip side of that, from an organizational perspective, is there a much greater understanding of what to ask from the CISO and the CISO function? A great question, Brian. I think it's changed drastically over the last, I mean, even more than the last five, 10 years, right? Because we had this evolution from IT security to cybersecurity, cyber as a business risk to, to now moving forward to cyber as an endemic part of business. And I think that has changed what people are looking for, what organizations are looking for. Also, there's been evolution of the space in terms of when we started in this, there was no cybersecurity degree. There were not a lot of certifications. These sorts of things have evolved over time. So that has progressed and started coming into what people are looking for from a job description perspective. But I think still being able to navigate those soft skills, being able to understand risk, navigate a complex organization and communicate that is key. Okay. What I'm hearing, just summarizing, it is a very complex role. You need to have different skills, which you described them uh, because technical expertise, business acumen, and actually effective communications. Of course, the business takes for granted that the complex domain of cybersecurity is understood. I mean, so that, that's given. So in your view, well, first of all, do you agree that this is that complex mix of skills? And what are the implications if um, you know, an organization gets that wrong and don't really get the right balance. I'd be really interested in your thoughts. So I agree with you in terms of the complexity. I think it's an interesting space because you're triangulating between what the business needs to operate successfully, how they need to uh, capitalize on market conditions and these sorts of things, what IT wants to deliver to, to help enable and make that happen, and what keeps this whole process safe both now and into the future. So there's an inherent tension between those three things. And I think being able to effectively navigate that both politically and professionally in terms of the services you're delivering is key. If you get that wrong, and many organizations do, then you run material risks of either security being, let's say, too closely aligned to technology, now where you're, you're more focused on velocity, rolling new product out, going to market faster with things, which obviously is good for the business in the near term, but might open up challenges in the long term. Or you're getting an oversimplified view of security uh, when you're presenting to the board and executives. One of the challenges here is that boards, senior executives tend not to be as conversant in the security space as you know, we security professionals might hope. And what that means is if you don't help one, create a safe space to have those conversations, ask what might be dumb questions, you're never going to get to good questions about it. And the second is that if you don't, as a security professional, understand something about what the business does, then you're not going to provide good answers there. And then you get a, let's say, dumbing down of what's getting reported, right? So something gets synthesized to go to the CISO, it gets synthesized again to go to your executives and synthesized 
But I think this is a this is a challenge because our space is changing all the time. What good looks like today will be different than what good looks like tomorrow or what it looked like yesterday. Uh, and so realizing that you can do the best that you can do today and still not be prepared for tomorrow, I think is something that businesses need to come to terms with and security organizations need to be transparent about. Yeah. And make it, I want to ask you something else. And of course, you know, it goes back to what you said earlier, that sometimes executives feel a bit embarrassed uh, to perhaps ask those questions about encryption or whatever it may be around security. And it's not just the senior executives. I mean, it's across the organizations because the people risk, you know, if people don't understand a cybersecurity risk, that's probably one of the weakest links that, you know, attackers could expose. How do you go about that education? And, you know, not feeling, not making an executive feel that maybe they've asked sort of silly questions and making that normal as part of the culture of the organization to say, I want to ask you questions about cybersecurity because I didn't understand it. What skills do you need to demonstrate and how do you go about that in the practical terms? Sure. Well, you know, there's, there's kind of different levels of this, right? So at a, let's say, tactical level, end users, these sorts of things across the company, obviously a focus on education awareness is important. Doing that in a way that's approachable to where people understand their position, their value as part of this chain. I think, again, that comes from the top. And creating those relationships with the board, I think, relies on one, more constant communication. I really believe that this should be something where, you know, if you read the FT in the morning and you don't have at least one or two questions about how this might have security import to your business, then you're probably underutilizing your security organization, right? Shouldn't just be about vulnerability management or encryption, as you mentioned, right? But how does this drive our business forward? And how does every decision that we make have business impact? And so I think that is a process of educating the board on what's available to them, what you can do with a certain amount of money, obviously is critical as well. And creating that kind of space of, you know, we're here to advise you on what's best. This is your decision as owning it from the business. Mika, shifting gears a little bit, I'd love to ask you what is perhaps a slightly controversial question, and that's about where the CISO should report to. As you know, you and I got introduced through a mutual friend at Accenture, and at that stage I was working for a global retailer based in Germany out there in the market looking for their next CISO. Now, half of that audience did not want to engage in the search at all. And that wasn't anything to do with the organization, the brand that we were working for, or the scope or the scale or the challenge of the role. No, most of them did not want to engage because they felt that reporting into the global CTO was a potential conflict of interest. I'd love to get your view on that and reporting line. I mean, I obviously know that organizations are always at a different stage of their evolution, their maturity in terms of security culture and understanding their business risks and what their appropriate um, level of response should be. But from a CISO audience to be so determined that this was a conflict, I'd just love to get your view on that. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to make blanket statements on, on these types of things, right? Everything is con contextual to the organization, its scale, its complexity. I do think, you know, I alluded earlier to this concept of tension between security and the business and uh, technology. And I think that's healthy. I think you have the opportunity when security reports up through technology for velocity uh, to take precedence over security. There might be times where that's important, but I think having clear transparency about when you're making that decision versus 
the risk that you're accepting as part of doing that can be challenging, right? If that's in your direct line of chain of command, for example. So I think this is something that needs to be considered. You know, I made this comment earlier about security as governance. I think here is where that kind of rubber meets the road in reality. And so have, if you put a CISO under a CIO, you need to realize that there's this tension there and have an effective governance mechanism to counterbalance that. Yes, like I said, I think every organization has its own nuance and individual complexities. What I guess was striking to me was that even before we got into a deep conversation about the role, about the history of where they've been and how they've got to where they are today, candidates just did not want to engage. They were very strict and had a hard line. Yeah, I think there's an, there's an interesting shift happening in this space now. You know, there's most CISOs, despite having chief in the title, or in the C-suite uh, of organizations. So I think you are seeing an elevation of the CISO role over time, particularly the last few years. I believe it is trending towards being part of the C-suite, which I think is an effective place to be. Although you could think about that maybe as a chief security officer that owns physical security, cyber, fraud, all these kind of things in one place. That way you have one person that's accountable for that space or part of a chief resilience officer type of role, which is also perfectly natural for reasons I'm sure we'll talk about later. I think that the CISOs that, that turn this position down right, probably realize this is an additional level of abstraction that you have to get through. That means that any reporting coming out of security is going to go through this kind of optic of technology. Having security in technology tends to paint the picture that security is a technology risk, right? And it creates this kind of cognitive distance between security as something that the business does as part of every activity, every decision they make versus how it's done at a digital level. Conflating those two runs material risk. And if you're accountable for that risk, legally or otherwise, then that becomes a material challenge. In my experience, really, there's been a growing recognition of cybersecurity as a strategic business risk rather than just an IT issue. And I think that's what I'm hearing you're saying as well. And I think what I'm hearing is that uh, there is not one size that fits all. And that depends uh, on organization size, industry, culture, and I guess the perceived importance of cybersecurity, which we know that it is growing, but that's not going to be the same in every organization. But if I may just offer an opinion, in my view, it depends on companies' maturity level and the level of change. And I see there's the axis of maturity versus volume of change to determine is a company is in a crisis that it needs to achieve something very, very quickly. And I think back to your point about speed, whether that's one model that could achieve that. But then once it transitions to more mature, less change, then a different model may apply. It would be, it would be interested in your thoughts, whether you, you agree about my uh, in a summary of what I heard. I think you're spot on, right? So uh, I, I agree with everything you said. And this is something, one, I, I, this concept of what's the right model for the right level of maturity, I, I think is, is a critical concern that business leaders should be asking themselves. Now, do they have the right person to, to manage this construct and to bring that information back to them? You see even larger organizations struggling with this, regulators as well, right? So the SEC had a proposed rule that they had out about having cyber expertise on the board. DFS did the same as well. The SEC ended up not doing it, but there was a lot of discussion in the security space on whether cyber should be a board level role. I think some people like Neil Pollard had a great article in the 
Council Foreign Relations about this, where they made the argument that really this isn't about using up like a precious board role for an, an important, but relatively niche topic, but rather elevating the general level of communication in this space, making sure that there's a constant and effective dialogue, a unified language of how to discuss this so that the business understands. And I think that's kind of the, the trajectory of where things should be going. Mika, um, how would you characterize the present threat landscape and the evolving challenges faced by organizations in the realm of cybersecurity? I mean, considering the diverse nature of businesses such as financial services, retail manufacturing, can you give um, an overview of the current global cybersecurity landscape and highlight the most prevalent threats? Instead of like running through a list of advanced persistent threats out there or kind of high level view of what threat actors are, I think there's a couple of things people should be thinking about. One, geopolitics, multipolar politics, right? There's lots of articles out there about the kind of, let's say that the West is no longer, one, a unified opinion, uh, and two, no longer carries as much weight. And what that means is that businesses are now needing to navigate across jurisdictions where it might be higher risk of operating in some locations than others. They need to be thinking about this as part of their security strategy. So compartmentalization operations, these kind of things are worth considering. The second, disruptive technology, right? Uh, of course, at the moment, this refers to generative AI, right? And how that might be used. One, within your business, can it be corrupted? Would you be able to tell whether it's corrupted? Is the information coming out of it true? And two, how could it be used maliciously? And I'm not talking about your existential risk, but rather most of security is based on human timelines. The SLAs revolve around this. And as threat actors become automated in this way, then security defensive team needs to be prepared for this and be able to react on that timeline. The other thing that we see a lot of supply chain attacks, it's an increasingly integrated environment out there. Big companies have thousands of suppliers. Those big companies themselves are often suppliers in the grander scheme of things. So how do you vet that? How do you ensure you have a hard perimeter kind of letting the, the bad guys in through the back door because you have all these partners that might not. And then I think the last thing that's worth considering, never a popular topic, insider risk. We just came out of a global pandemic. We moved into a series of kind of regionalized conflicts. We have inflation and elevated prices. These are all things that drive uncertainty in people's lives. And it's conclusively proved out in the research out there that these kind of uncertainty drives insider threat activity. So how do you manage that space? And of course, these are people you already let into your environment. No one likes thinking about someone on their team potentially being a threat to them or their business, but it's something that needs to be navigated respectfully, of course. Well, this is a great segue into talking about maybe one of the big stories you're going to bring to the table today. And that was how you basically helped UBS through the pandemic. Literally every company in the world was caught a little bit blindsided by this. But if you're a global financial services firm, who has, for the most part, a fairly set traditional ways of working with all the technologies and processes wired to that way of working. And all of a sudden, you've got to stand up your organization overnight and effectively operate with high levels of integrity and security. What is the impact on the CISO function? How do you begin to engage with that and help them operate, but keep them safe? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'm sure uh, everyone everyone looks back on the the pandemic and shivers a bit. But uh, 
But for us, it was an interesting time. We were in a fortunate position. We had already been pushing as a security organization to get rid of laptops and these sorts of things because of the obvious risk of the device got stolen, what that might mean. Obviously, you use mechanisms to mitigate that risk. But we wanted to move towards a fully virtualized environment so that we could control it completely. You got a lot more telemetry out of it as well. This was initially something that I think the, the business was a bit hesitant around, right? Explaining what cloud computing is, what a virtualized environment is, these sorts of things uh, was something we had to bring them up to speed on. There was still some resistance. The pandemic really was the straw that broke the camel's back or kind of catalyzed this move, right? It kind of obviously moved east to west from a lockdown perspective as it was clear that it was going to impact more of our business we kind of seized on this opportunity to say, this is our chance to, to kind of drive this home, this falling computers out of people's cold dead hands and putting in a new virtualized environment was something, you know, that we were doing one at a time before that. But we went through, we had a series of meetings with, with our business leadership about what, what this meant, what we could control, what we couldn't control. I think we were able to pretty conclusively prove that we had greater security in an environment that we fully controlled, even if people were home. And we were able to use that to essentially overnight kind of flip the switch and say, here's what we're going to do. We had to roll out a whole education awareness campaign so people knew how to use this, what this mysterious device was and how they logged into it. So Mika, this is really interesting because obviously all of us remember the pandemic. Do you feel that the organization eventually understood the value that cybersecurity is bringing and this dawned on them that, wow, this is possible. Uh, and do you think that it elevated cybersecurity and the role that you were doing at that point? Absolutely. I mean, I think this is one of, uh, if you can use the term glory days for security, right? One, we had been a bit ahead of the curve, right? We had seen where things were going from a technology perspective. We had started working with our colleagues in technology to implement this uh, in a safe and secure manner. We had done a lot of homework to, to illustrate that this would be advantageous, not only for the business, but more secure. And so we were in a good spot. We had the opportunity to capitalize on a bit of chaos, never let a good disaster go to waste or in chaos, there's opportunity, whichever one of these maxims you prefer. And so this was an ideal time for, for us from a security perspective to really kind of wash away the old and get in with the new and make a bit of a quantum leap there. You know, in our space and Alex, your CTO, I'm sure you know this, that it is, it's often kind of iterative. You're building organically over time. You don't frequently have a chance to make a quantum leap. And this was our opportunity. Uh, and so we seized on it. And I think that was well received by the business. Fantastic. It's really interesting because in some ways, what you're describing is that the realization of the theory or what they considered to be the theory of what cybersecurity is and their understanding into practice, because you actually, what you demonstrated, this is how it could elevate, empower, enable the business during the most frantic time in all of our um, living memories. Would you agree with that? I think so. Uh, I mean, I think it was really this, this kind of watershed moment of security isn't something that just keeps bad people from doing bad things. It helps us make good decisions for the business. And that was instrumental in building out those relationships. You know, our leadership team, the executive leadership team spent a lot of time talking through these challenges, working with our colleagues in technology were, of course, were the ones that delivered all of this. I think that was an essential moment for all of us and was a material turning point or inflection point for the, for the firm, right? Uh, before that, you know, many across the business thought the idea of you know, working remote, which is 
grind the bank to a halt, that we wouldn't be able to do many of the activities we need to keep the business going. Uh, and we proved that we could do that in a safe and sustainable way. And I think that was well-received and bought us a lot of goodwill for, for the kind of future activities that we want to do from a security position. Exactly. I like that. I like the term that he used, watershed moment, because sometimes you do need those watershed moments to, to really demonstrate to the business the art of possible. Uh, and I guess many of us during that period were able to then be braver in terms of what we wanted to do, you know, to make the next wave of transformation. And I think you illustrated that what um, some of the work that he had done in the past paid off. And then effectively, you were able to move to the next wave. Do you agree with that? Exactly. I mean, I think you touched on the, or one of us mentioned legacy earlier in the call, right? I think this is an endemic challenge for CISOs, right? You get into some place, technology has grown over time. You invariably have technology that needs to be decommissioned. You have vulnerabilities floating around the state. So you end up spending a lot of time looking at kind of retroactive security, if you will, versus, and this isn't something that super resonates with the business. If you lower the amount of unpatched vulnerabilities, sure, that's a, that's a number on a page for them. But when you can enable their team to work from home in a safe and secure manner, to continue to do business, to continue to drive money, that was an important turning point for us uh, and really helped carry that, that conversation to like a more strategic level. How do we get involved more in business decision making going forward so that we can inform those topics, right? Obviously, what's best for the business is, is up to the business, but we can help them make an informed decision from a security perspective. If you think uh, security is expensive, you should see the cost of incidents, right? So this is one of these an ounce of prevention kind of topics. Absolutely. And I really like the way you described the story and described that what evidence of the business, what it could be done. Uh, and taking up this term of watershed moments and of transformational moments, of pivotal moments that change the perception of the business, are there any other stories that you can share with our listeners in terms of key moments that you actually spot an opportunity or you saw a weakness and you thought, Okay, this is time for transformation. I'd love to hear your um, other stories. Absolutely, Alex. I think the one that springs to mind for me, and my apologies in advance, I can't give names here, but back during consulting days, worked for uh, a major Asian manufacturer. They, at the time, huge company. They own 250 some odd other companies, global footprints, really global. They had brought us in initially for some kind of basic sounding of security topics, in terms of, kind of where they wanted to go strategically. They had just came out of a, a well-publicized incident and wanted to make sure that they were going the right direction. This was supposed to be a relatively light touch kind of view, but as it turned out, not the case. So we got in and then it became immediately apparent that there were some endemic challenges that, that weren't fully recognized. So I think we talk a lot these days about bringing kind of a multicultural view on the topics and the help that diversity brings into that. I'm a full supporter of that, but you need to have like a common language of understanding there. And I don't mean like spoken language, but a way that you communicate about this. You need to have a consensus around what your culture is as a firm and how you embrace security. In this case, you had the leadership of this organization based in Asia. Literally on the exact opposite side of the planet, you had their entire security organization. And you know, the, the gulf between them was as wide as the physical distance, right? The business there didn't understand security, didn't understand the imports of it. The business itself was so broad in so many places that security didn't understand routinely what these companies did and therefore had challenges 
so it became apparent pretty quickly that that this operating operating model just doesn't work. You know, I mentioned security as governance earlier, and I think that's an important concept. But I don't think good governance can make up for bad organizational design. Right? These two need to mirror. And so this was one of the core observations from our perspective is that you can't have this kind of silification of security kind of floating around doing their thing, the business floating around doing their thing, and then both hoping that because no news is good news, that, that everything was going to work. And in this case, it, there was a material divide that needed to be uh, undone. So we had made a suite of recommendations about redesigning this entire operating model building some governance around that, having an education awareness campaign, really driving a culture of security, again, from the top down. And so thankfully they, they, they followed through with those, saw material benefit from it. So that was uh, made us feel good as, as consultants, but I think is a lesson that many businesses could take to heart. Alex, a great conversation there. I love the rhythm you were getting into. Mika, I would just like to shift gears a little bit and talk about the role of the board when it comes to cyber security and business risk. As you know, at the digital board, we spend quite considerable time engaging with boards, and that's across a broad set of topics. It's not about cyber specifically, but it's really about how do they bring technology leadership into the board and into their thinking so that they can be more effective board members in challenging the organization underneath them around their technology, their digital or the data or their cyber strategy. Clearly one of the most hot topics is cyber. It's an area of great importance to boards and they play an ever growing role in overseeing the cybersecurity agenda within their organization. Mika, can you just share from your perspective what you think the role should be of the board in overseeing cybersecurity? So I, th I think there's a couple of things. One is taking a more proactive view in terms of diving into the space, right? And, and that includes making sure they're informed on the topic, getting that information from their security organization, demanding it in a way that they understand and that they can correlate back like many of their other risks across their taxonomy. I think the second would be ensuring that we've talked a lot about governance and op model and organizational design, that these are built in a way that supports the needs of the organization. I think Alex made a great point earlier in terms of what looks good in an organization from an op model design perspective is going to change over time along with the complexity and maturity of that organization. So taking that into account, and I think seeking out effective guidance on how to do that, what good looks like, is going to be something that I think boards should be more cognizant of. But I really think this comes back to that communication point. Nice. And in your experience, how can boards effectively define and assess their organization's risk appetite and tolerance concerning cybersecurity? I think they need to go beyond a, you know, many risk appetite statements basically say we have a low risk appetite for cyber. That's not a very helpful metric, right? I don't know what that looks like and I don't know what that entails. But I think being able to correlate this back to like you would liquidity risk or another risk that's quantifiable and say, this is what we're willing to tolerate. We have X amount uh, of dollars we're willing to invest into that. Those are things that I think are meaningful, measurable, and actionable. And that is going to be critical for your security organization. I think the other thing is understanding that, you know, we talked about shifting baselines. This is changing all the time. I think having a good view of what your risk appetite is now 
and what it might be in, in six months or so. Uh, it's something that you're going to need to constantly reassess. As disruption continues, that's going to be something facing ports. And then therefore, they're going to have to adapt how much risk they're willing to, to navigate through, how much they're willing to accept, and how much they want to spend to mitigate that risk. Alex, from your perspective, how would you recommend boards quantify and correlate cyber risk in financial terms, you know, similar to liquidity risk or other measurable risks? And regarding the changing nature of risk baselines, what proactive measures can boards take to ensure ongoing assessment and adaptation to evolving cyber threats? I recommend boards quantify cyber risk by understanding that businesses are attractive targets for all hackers, adopting an ROI approach where higher vulnerabilities increase the appeal for the hackers highlights the need for cybersecurity measures that make the organization a tougher target. This strategy lowers the ROI for potential attackers and is steering them away. For ongoing adaptation to evolving threats, I suggest regular proactive risk assessments, um, staying informed about industry-specific threats, and creating a culture of continuous improvement. And Mika, I mean, I'm not looking from a perspective from UBS, but maybe more broadly and really digging into your consulting background. But do you think organizations and boards particularly have an over-dependency on subject experts coming in from the outside or even their own cybersecurity function just to tell them where they're at or what the emerging threat landscape is and what they should be doing to challenge the organization to mitigate against it. So more mature organizations, I think, are towards the latter, but I think there's a bit of crisis of confidence in the former, right? So if you don't know what good looks like, then you don't know that you have the right people or the right organization or the right pop model sharing information with you. You probably aren't in a great position to, to go out and seek out expert outside counsel, particularly in organizations that also have some kind of implementation bias, right? So I think these are things that need to be factored into that consideration. There are tons of organizations out there that provide information. CISA in the US, for example, they put out tons of guidance. Obviously, a lot of that is more detailed than what a board might need, uh, but staying cognizant on the high-level topics and what that means, I think, is going to be an increasing demand upon the board. Yes, my observation is that boards are growing more confident in knowing, for the most part, the right questions to ask. It's really about knowing if the answers they're getting are the right answers and how to challenge those. Mika, what's your take on that? I think that's partially true. I, I think they're, you know, the questions tend to be around how confident are we that, that we're not going to have XYZ ransomware attack hit us or that we're managing our third party risk or, or these types of topics. I think that those are important questions for sure, but I don't think they're the totality of questions, right? The, you know, I gave some examples earlier about moving into high risk locations, take advantage of market opportunities there. And I think having this kind of proactive thought of we want to do X. What do we need to do this safely? Uh, what should we be thinking about now to enable that opportunity uh, is going to be a critical process going forward. Mika, how do you help board members develop a greater understanding of their space so that they can challenge the information that's been given to them? Well, I think it's an interesting question because not only you know, have most members of boards not come up through this technology security 
space, but also most members of boards came up through the business, right? Technology, most CISOs, et cetera, have come up through technology or come up through defense or, or something like this. And so I think it needs to be a two-way street of the business really trying to understand, the boards especially, trying to understand what security impact might be of their decisions and not being afraid to ask those questions that boards are, get paid what they do because they're, they're savvy and, and no good questions to ask. But I think being willing to kind of have that open line of communication is going to be key on a much more frequent basis. And I think, you know, some humility on the side of technology to, to really understand what the business does and to bring that into how they secure the organization and the advice that they give the business. Mika, looking ahead, what insights can you share with our listeners into the future of cybersecurity? I mean, including the anticipated shifts in the threat landscape and, of course, the evolving geopolitical dynamics at the moment. Looking back to look forward, right? disruptive change is becoming more frequent and at larger scale, right? And so, you know, we had the global pandemic, we have a number of regionalized conflicts, those were only going up, and technology disruption itself with generative AI, potentially general AI at some point in the future, there's conversations around quantum computing and what that might mean. So I think the question is going to be, you have a web of complexity that you need to navigate, you need to understand you need to approach this with a sense of shared purpose, if we, as we've talked about. And I think the ability to, to ask good questions will lead to good answers uh, in this space. But I, I think it's going to have to be a joint push between the security organization and the business as part of the way they do business. I, I think I mentioned this maybe in the very first comment, but I think security as endemic to the way that, that the business functions is the way of the future. And Mika, the future for you, what does that look like? <laughs> uh, I hope to to uh, to use my skill set from both a consulting perspective and from you know an in-house practitioner's perspective and move towards kind of bespoke advisory. I think uh, I'm I'm super interested in the nexus between technology disruption, geopolitics, and security, and what that might mean for uh, investors and businesses alike. I think that there's a definite need to to kind of pull together expertise across a myriad of domains there. Uh, and I hope to be an active player in that space. Alex, I think we should wrap this conversation up and say a huge thank you to Mika. Mika, you share some great stories with us, wonderful insights at your time at UBS and managing through the pandemic, and also some of those stories from your consulting days. I think, moreover, just giving a general sense of the insights and dynamic landscape of the CISO role how that's evolving within organizational hierarchies, how CISOs can help manage the navigation of the complexities around business and organizational challenges, as well as your take on the evolving role of the board when it comes to cybersecurity oversight. Mika, you did a fantastic job. We'd love to have you back in the future. Thank you and have a great rest of the evening. Mika, it's been fantastic talking to you. Uh, I've learned so much and uh, I love your perspective uh, on some of the really complex situations in uh, cyber. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Alex. And thank you, Brian. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here today. Hey, Alex, we've reached that part of the show where we're going to discuss the five key takeaways from well, what was a great conversation with Mika. Can I ask you to lead us off on that? Absolutely. I think Mika made uh, the job of identifying the five takeaways so easy for us, Brian. I hope you agree. 
but for me, the first takeaway was the diverse skills required for the role. The CISO role demands a multifaceted skill set. It's not just about the hard skills, uh, i.e. the technical skills required for any CISO, but also the soft skills, communications, understanding governance, explaining risk. And this brings me to one of the key aspects that Mika mentioned, which is educating executives in cybersecurity. And um, he mentioned the importance of education and awareness at different levels within the organization. And of course, when it comes to board conversation, making sure that uh, their lack of deep familiarity with um, uh, different aspects of cybersecurity does not prevent them from asking questions and getting involved with uh, understanding cyber risk and how the business can protect itself. Alex, I think it's a great observation. I mean, as a headhunter and someone who's actively involved in a number of CISO searches at the moment, it's a really tough job. I'm learning that. It, it demands an awful lot from the leader coming into this role. Not only do they have to have, you know, phenomenally deep expertise in their domain, but they've really got to understand organizational dynamics. And I'm, I'm talking about culture and the organizational model, the, the people, their roles, they've got to really know how to engage with a broad set of stakeholders. And that will range from often investors or the board, the executive management team, right into the bowels of the organization. Brian, I would say the second takeaway, Mika talked about uh, the importance of governance and communication. And um, he mentioned that security is primarily a governance activities. But what was really um, interesting that Mika pointed out that uh, uh, good governance does not compensate for bad organizational design. And I think that's a key learning for me as well, that um, we need to get the right organizational model, the right operating model in place in order for security to be effective. Alex, I also love the quote, good governance does not compensate for bad organizational design. I don't think I've heard that before and I love it. And I think I'm going to use it because um, it's probably very uh, transferable across many other roles. But it's, it's very relatable, that, that comment. And I really don't know how much more to add to your commentary, which was great. But I think the emphasis it places on their profile is really, like I said earlier, their ability to influence and, and see security much more holistically. So I would agree and not much more to add on that takeaway. Yeah, I think the third takeaway is about the elevation of the CISO role. Um, and we've seen that uh, shifting and improving over the last uh, five to 10 years. And, um, and CISOs are increasingly become part of the C-suite within an organization. And this trend is likely to continue and accountability and reporting structure becomes a key decision points for uh, for the board. And of course, the uh, idea of having a CISO role which owns physical security, cybersecurity, and also fraud, and the one role could be one such solution. Uh, Mika also mentioned that uh, there are concerns about CISOs reporting to uh, tech because they may just be seen as... Um, uh, very tech aligned, where sometimes it needs to be independent from tech as well and not uh, seen as a purely uh, tech role. Hey, Alex, that was a great uh, point you made. 
I think it's also probably worth noting that on the reporting line aspect, it is, it is depending on an organisation's um, structure, its governance model, its maturity. But I think it's also worth noting um, the emergence of the broader role, the chief security officer, the CSO, which um, encompasses information security, but is also often responsible for the physical security, the safety of employees or facilities or, or broader assets. And you see that in, in larger and more mature organisations, I mean, like financial services. But it was definitely enlightening here in Mika's perspective on the overall reporting uh, aspect to it. So I would agree. Great point. And I think for me, the fourth takeaway was uh, the dynamic nature of the security space. It's moving at a uh, much faster pace than it used to do. So what is considered good practice today may not be sufficient for tomorrow. And organizations and security professionals really need to embrace this transparency, this fast pace to make sure that they can keep up with um, emerging changes in cybersecurity. And that brings me to the fifth takeaway, which is about disruptive technology and especially the role of generative AI. Mika discussed the impact of disruptive technologies focusing on Gen AI. He raised concerns about the potential corruption of AI within businesses and the malicious use of such technology. And uh, the importance of assessing the reliability of AI-generated content and making sure that uh, defensive teams are able to react uh, to an automated threat uh, actor uh, which is generated by uh, AI. So these are the th some of the new challenges that cybersecurity team face. Alex, some great points. And just picking up on the disruptive technology aspect, wow, it's such a fast-moving uh, space out there. And I can't get my head around it. And I don't know how organizations can really keep up with the pace, the intensity and velocity of technological change, particularly in the areas of AI and machine learning. I mean, it's really disrupting pretty much everything and security is not safe from that for sure. There are probably no boundaries to what AI and machine learning can disrupt. Well, Alex, time to wrap up. Um, great summary, great takeaways, great interview with Mika and a big thank you to him again. Brian, I think we had a wonderful conversation. I hope uh, you agree that uh, Mika made uh, the job of identifying the five takeaways very easy for us. We are we're grateful to his uh, to his participation in this, and we're looking forward to our next interview, which we'll be releasing soon. So thank you again, and thanks to everybody for listening. Mm -hmm.